0: Welcome to Lumpin' Week in Review, the show that covers the past week of news, happenings, and programs presented on Lumpin' Radio. This week, we discussed one of the best books of the summer, learned about the infiltration of law enforcement by the far right, and heard dynamic new music. All this was The Trump Diaries, Size Matters, and AWCY-FM, only on the Lumpin' Week in Review for September 11, 2020. I-94 chatted with Lucy Bridge, the author of Sad Janet, A Comedic Look at Depression. Rich discussed how her own shyness informed the character, why some experiences at Christmas led her to satirize the holiday, and why animals are better than people. I-94, Lumpen's Books and Literature show, airs every Thursday and Sunday at 11 a.m.
1: I rarely say this on the show, but this was a book I really enjoyed. We got the book in. Um, I think Jeremy dropped it off to me, and I actually read it overnight uh, on the first night I got it. I read it pretty quickly too, yeah. I loved it. And uh, it's, it's very
2: rare that we all love the book. So. Yeah, it's
1: very rare. We're usually <gasps> oh, very unhappy you. about books. Well, so. It's
3: also a, a laugh out loud <laughs> book, great. which is thank pretty you.
1: rare. Yeah, it is. So, Lucy, I just kind of wanted to start, you know, the, the book itself, I felt the title in a weird way is a bit of a misnomer. I know that the character, Janet, um, kind of constantly calls herself sad. But I never actually thought she was sad. You know, I, mean, I think you may think of her as possibly depressed. I mean, she does some things that are, I think, you know, somewhat quest- or, bad. Sad or bad, or bad. You Jana. know, que- questionable to her own, you know, sanity or safety. But I thought it was really interesting. Most of the novel, to me, seems to be an exploration of somebody that is really resisting um, fitting in with other people's perceptions of how they should act. Uh, her was- family. Her That's boyfriend what I was say
2: like an outsider.
1: Yeah, sure. and and I think it's a really interesting and and very funny examination of this. Could you talk a little bit about why I guess you chose this subject in the first place, and what about the character of Janet appealed to you so much that you gave her this voice?
4: Um, well, I'm personally somebody that doesn't really like to conform. <laughs> mm-hmm. I like those sort of people myself. So. Um, but yeah, the book actually came about cause I suppose I had a few bad Christmases when I just didn't feel very happy. And I thought, you know, if there was a pill I could take that would make me happy and sort of fit in more and conform with what was going on around me, then I would probably definitely take it.
1: That's, that's interesting. Did you, I was going to ask you if you'd had some problems with Christmas. I think some of us here on the show kind of have some mixed feelings about Christmas. <laughs> I, I have no feelings. You, about you, it, Ma- it Michael just... and I, <laughs> tend, we don't necessarily celebrate Christmas cause it's not in our <laughs> religion, but I, I happen to love oh, the right. tree and the lights. Um, But, and Jeremy, you have some mixed feelings about
2: it, isn't it? Christmas to me is, it's, I don't know, it's like a scam to me. It's just like a time you're forced to hang out with your family when you might not Yeah, exactly, yeah. If you didn't have debt before,
3: you could have debt after. Yeah, and it's,
2: you know, it's just like a big, uh, first of all, I'm not religious, and uh, I I could care less about the birth of Jesus, and then second (laughs) of all, like, You know, it's just, it's a time of mass consumerism and
4: that's... Yeah, exactly, yeah. Yeah. I think think that's what I'm really against, really. I think I I want to love Christmas, obviously, because it's like, it makes you feel like a child again. But I think I've just sort of fallen out of love with it a bit as an adult, obviously. (laughs) I think
3: it's always
2: sucked, though. I mean, for me, I never liked Christmas. I don't know. It was
3: always weird hearing about kids, like, being traumatized by finding out that Santa
2: wasn't
3: weird. Yeah, when Like, I never got that, like how messed up kids were when they found out Santa wasn't real.
2: Well, I'm the youngest of (laughs) eight. I'm the youngest of eight. I found out like everything way too young. So
1: yeah, that explains a lot. Yeah. Yeah. And and yeah, uh, it's really interesting, Lucy, because Christmas, especially in England, is is such a, a major holiday? I mean, they make a mm. huge deal out of it. You know, even Doctor yeah, Who has it, a Christmas yeah. special. I mean, is it really yeah. that
3: yeah. different from here? It's yes. pretty massive here.
1: Yeah, no, it's it's. It, it, I would say in some ways, it's it's more oppressive in England. I yeah, think there,
4: there's there's thing, there's been things starting in the shops already here. Really, I've, I've noticed already. Oh, really? Yeah, <laughs> just small little things like. You know, like chocolates and cakes and things just appearing gradually.
1: It, it's September. Well, we're taping yeah, this on already. September 9th. So, yeah.
3: I hate to sound <laughs> like a, an idiot, but I didn't know they, they did Halloween over there, too. That's more that, recent. That's in the book. Yeah. Oh, that's okay.
1: more recent, though. That's more recent. You know, but this is a really interesting thing. Lucy, how, is some of what Janet does based on your own experience outside of the fact that, you know, you had some bad Christmases and don't didn't really want to experience that?
4: Um, well, I worked at a dog shelter when I left college, so, so yeah, she's sort of like a heightened version of me, I suppose. She's not me, but she is sort of part of me. Mm-hmm.
2: <laughs> Cleaning up dog poop? Yeah.
4: yeah. Lots of... <laughs> Great. Lots of uh,
2: it's it's uh, pretty depressing. No, nah, I, was, I was joking because I, I was talking to Mike on the way here, and I, it, it's funny because I could totally relate to Janet it, it, when I was... Same.
1: Um, yeah, I t- I could as well. Yeah. You
2: know, fart jokes, you know, talking about poop all the time, you know, <laughs> eating candy, um we, yeah. we were joking beforehand, but like as a, you know, a 50-year-old male, I could very much relate with her. So it, with the outsider thing, the Christmas thing, and then just a lot of her observations. Mm-hmm. One of my favorites, it's very early in the book when she's observing something on television and it was a reality star that had had a sex tape and was throwing a birthday party for her child yeah. that she paid for with her <laughs> royalties from the sex tape. And I was just, I, I think there's a lot of satire of culture and also you know the hold that big pharma has over us, you know, that this, yeah. I can promise you happiness with just this magical pill. Yeah.
1: And I, I actually want to go there for a second, Lucy, because I thought that was a brilliant satirical move. Um, A pill to make you happy at at Christmas. You know, that really kind of put into relief a lot of the themes you had in the book um, because most of the book is really about Janet, in a sense, being Janet. But the plot of the Mm -hmm. book, in a sense, is that, you know, there's tremendous pressure on her from her family, from her coworkers, to take a pill that is somehow going to make her a better version of who she already is. And Mm -hmm. I think it's kind of obvious that Janet. Doesn't think there's much wrong with her. You know what I mean. She, yeah. she thinks she's fine. She yeah. you know may be uncomfortable with some of the actions she's taken, but she certainly doesn't think that she needs all this pressure from outside to be different. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that because I think we've seen that especially in America. Um, had I not known you were were from England, I would have actually thought this was an American book because. We're mm. deluged with pharmaceutical advertisements here. You know I mean? It's yeah. ridiculous. So I wondered if you could talk a little bit about that and why you kind of pinned your, your satire on that.
4: It's not quite as bad here in England, but it's still – you're still aware of it everywhere, obviously, this like – this feeling that you need to be a better version of yourself, but be it happier or thinner or, you know – you can't really just be be who you are, especially when it's just like things like sadness and depression. there's such so much pressure all the time, and this these sort of miracle fixes, be it pharmaceuticals or anything else, you know diets or whatever
2: there's a there's a point when there's an advertisement from uh the company that makes it med for life and and the closing line in the advertisement is you deserve christmas <laughs> and then you say it's basically yeah. basically a viagra ad sorry you don't say it Janet does and uh we can help you get it up for santa and even though you know that's a very humorous uh aside i think you know that's kind of what they're aiming for it's just like you know Ooh. here is this world that you can have at your fingertips and like to mm-hmm. me janet seemed like she was pretty okay just being herself
4: yeah. yeah that's what i think i think christmas is christmas is this huge happy big joyous thing and it's like come come join us you know why wouldn't you want this and it's you know i think janet feels like well i don't really want it because you're forcing it on me and i don't really feel it so why should i come with you <laughs> I think it's more like that like this sort of, sort of almost like an alien thing like they want to you know take possess you
3: but one of the things I liked about the book is that it wasn't just one note of, of Janet rebelling. I mean, the book is hilarious throughout. It, that was pretty impressive for it to be to have funny lines on just about every page for 270 some <laughs> pages. But also, like she she struggles with being a pain in the AWS to everybody around her. She's aware of it. She's not totally oblivious, and she's not blindly against it you know she she's aware of all all the 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 smoke and mirrors the gimmicks like the bs of it all but still she thinks "Eh, maybe i should take it maybe i should (laughs) be this better version of myself that doesn't. Exist. I think I
4: think she's just tired of it. It's yeah. it feels like a struggle all the time, obviously, because she's constantly forced with these people telling her she should be some other way. Right. So I suppose she's just tired of it and wants wants you know wants to, it to be over them you know them going at her all the time.
0: It was the pill for shyness that cemented my feelings that pills were garbage, that we were one step away from a pill that would make you straight when all most of us wanted was to be allowed to be crooked, broken, flawed. That shyness pill broke me, enraged me. It might be great, the boyfriend had said, like he too saw my shyness as a disease, something that needed curing. Like he was only with me because he hoped one day they'd find a cure, some proof that I wasn't really ugly, just shy and sad. We loved the Smiths, and I remember how, when their song about shyness being nice came on, I was blinded by what I thought was love. I didn't even hear the part about how it can stop you. I didn't care if it stopped me now that I had this boy in my arms, because I was stupid. He probably remembers it differently. That's the problem with love, or what you think is love. If I love myself more, maybe things would be different. What if someone can't get out of bed because they're so shy, he said. What if it's not because they're shy, I said. What if they've just seen how pointless life is and can't be bothered anymore? I can't talk to you when you're like this, Janet, he said, still talking. He meant when I'm bad Janet, the Janet who swears at other people's children, the Janet who won't answer the phone in case it's anyone's mother, the Janet who chooses to work in the woods with dogs rather than have more conversations about what's wrong with her and how it needs fixing. I never used to say, there's a pill for that, when he couldn't get it up. Debs is the only one who leaves me alone, so naturally I sniff around her all the time, wanting her to notice me. Everyone is taking all the pills, Janet, they tell me, like that's ever worked on me. I'm still wearing clothes from five years ago. If they really want me to take the pills, they should just say, no one's taking them. It's all super nerdy. Or, it's French. Or, it'll kill you. Debs is always saying she'd be dead in a ditch if she didn't have her pills, and I believe her. She has her kids to keep alive now as well as herself, and that's not easy. I get it. Before she was a mom, maybe she could have afforded to be selfish to see what would happen if she stopped taking them. Now she knows she has to take them forever. She has to think of the children. So she dutifully takes them every day. I'm sure she assumes that one day I'll join her, if I'm ever stupid enough to get knocked up, and we'll sit out on the porch in the evening, not talking about all the things we'd hoped to do with our lives. I lie awake most nights now, thinking about everything that has ever happened to me. I can't switch it off, switch me off, but I want to. I've always been like this. It doesn't matter if I'm alone in bed or not. Stuff that happened today, at work, last week, last year, five years ago, it's all just there at the front of my brain when it's supposed to be shelved away like I've stored it all wrong. Like my brain is one of those closets you never want to open because everything will fall out and crush you. My brain is all abandoned board games and broken lamps. Unworn sweaters you were too lazy to return. I worry that if I live long enough, this stuff will be too much and I'll be glad when I start forgetting. If I lie awake long enough, my mind always goes back to the boy I used to share this bed with, this life with. Some of those broken lamps were his fault. Chuck Mertz chatted with former FBI Special Agent Michael German, who blew the whistle on white supremacists and far-right organizing within police forces. German details how police departments have chosen to work with far-right forces because they found their idea more mainstream and what this means for policing in America today. This is Hell, airs every Sunday at 10.
5: Here to help us understand what has happened to law enforcement fellow with the Brennan Center for Justices, Liberty and National Security Program, Michael German wrote the report hidden in plain sight, racism, white supremacy, and far-right militancy in law enforcement that was posted at the Brennan Center's website brennancenter.org Michael is a 16-year FBI veteran specializing in domestic terrorism and covert operations. He left the FBI in 2004 after reporting continuing deficiencies in FBI counterterrorism operations to the to Congress. Michael also served as the policy counsel for national security and privacy for the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office. And you can follow Michael on Twitter at Rethink intel welcome to this is hell and thank you so much for being on our show michael
6: thanks for having me i appreciate it
5: so is it michael or mike what should i go with mike's fine okay cool so is uh, this is just a stupid question i thought of about five seconds ago is bad apples is that code or for white supremacists are that who is that who the uh, the bad apples are are they white
6: supremacists uh certainly there are white supremacists in law enforcement and, and uh, it's on a spectrum right there are plenty of examples of police officers who are have joined or or were already uh, affiliated with white supremacist organizations uh there are also others that are affiliated with organizations that are far-right militant groups that may not uh, uh, procl- proclaim that they're not racist, but they are involved in, in militant and illegal criminal activity uh, And then there are police officers who engage in openly racist conduct Whether this is trading racist uh, Language on social media or in public or otherwise acting in a manner that uh, uh, Displays their their racist uh, ideas So uh, the, the, there's an, enough of them that the FBI warns its own agents that when they open domestic terrorism investigations of white supremacist groups or far-right militant groups, they have to be careful about who they share that information with in law enforcement because there's sympathy for these ideas among their fellow uh, law enforcement officers.
5: So is is white, supremacist, or white supremacists and white supremacist organizations, are are they prevalent within only the police aspect of law enforcement or are they throughout the entire justice system?
6: So it, it, it's it's interesting and it's complex, and I appreciate that question. I, I, and what I try to do in the report is explain a little bit about the history of white supremacy in the United States. You know, you have to understand, and, and I found this out by as an FBI undercover agent joining white supremacist groups. And you know, their their view of our history is very different from what we learn in school and, and in some ways more accurate. You know, the, the United States, the, the European colonization of the quote unquote new world was a white supremacist project, right? The idea that European whites uh, were, were God given the, the the power to go and dominate other lands often inhabited by black and brown people. Um, so uh, the laws of the time were created to effect that white supremacist domination of the country. And you know, when, the, when we became the United States slavery was enshrined in law, the first policing in the United States were slave patrols or among the first policing and other labor, labor controls, uh, uh, was, was what, you know, these weren't necessarily crime control units, uh, but rather, uh, ensuring the dominance of the, the most powerful groups economically. Um, and so law enforcement for hundreds of years in the United States was explicitly white supremacist because they were enforcing white supremacist laws and this wasn't just in the south. Uh, uh, James Lowell has has done an a excellent survey of uh, what were called sundown towns and these were towns all across the United States where uh, black people and other people of color were not allowed to be in town, much less live in town, weren't allowed to be in town after sundown. And these towns existed through the United States all the way through to the 1970s. Uh, So uh, the police in those towns were enforcing those formal and informal rules about uh, uh, how how people of color could travel through those towns. So again, this has never been a, a... An anomaly. This is not some fringe element. It's foundational to the the creation of our nation. And I think you have to understand that to understand how it still affects government policies. And of course, those government policies are enforced by law enforcement at all levels. And, you know, this happens not just in law enforcement, but in every aspect of our society. You know, if you look at corporate boards across the United States, they're disproportionately white. If you look at Congress, it's disproportionately white. If you look at the military, the officer corps is disproportionately white. Law enforcement itself is disproportionately white. Prisons are disproportionately black and brown. This, this isn't an accident. It's a remnant of the structural systems that we've built over the the decades and centuries in this country.
5: So I had like 55 questions written for you, and now all I have is follow-up questions to everything that you're saying. So uh, you, uh, you're saying that uh, white supremacists embrace our white supremacist history, while it seems like everybody else wants to deny that white supremacist history. Do you think denial of our white supremacist history leads to promoting white supremacy?
6: Absolutely. It, it perpetuates, it allows it to fester. I mean, it's fascinating to me. And and you know, as an undercover agent at the FBI, I got these warnings personally, right? You're going to go into these groups and just keep in mind, you might run across some police officers and so as you're setting up your alias background, you know, make sure it's tight because uh, police officers are gonna have the ability to, to uncover it much easier than the average citizen. So knowing that when, uh, after I'd left the FBI, this 2006 report, white supremacists infiltrating law enforcement uh, came out, this reinforced what I had been told. And then there was another report in 2015 that leaked uh, where it was a specific warning to domestic terrorism investigators that if you're investigating white supremacist cases, they're often linked to law enforcement. Uh, so obviously the FBI knows it's an issue enough to, to warn its own agents and to change its, its policies in how it works cases to avoid the problem, but none of those documents talk about how to protect the public. From white supremacist, far right militant, and racist police officers, and and that's astonishing, right? If if there was a document that the FBI produced that said Al Qaeda had infiltrated U.S. law enforcement, you can imagine there'd be a national initiative to find these people and make sure that uh, the public was protected from them. But even though there these documents have existed for decades, there's no national strategy or, or effort to identify them. So we don't know how many, uh, you know, I firmly believe it's a small minority, but if you allow, uh, a few bad apples to remain in the barrel, even though, you know, they're there, you're a pretty poor grocer, right? That, that, uh, uh the leadership in these law enforcement agencies should be Uh, rooting them out and the federal government should be leading that effort.
7: Thing. Nope. All right, how... What's that? A, I know. Is that Ed's car making all that noise? Yeah, it sounds like his axle's cached. Everything all right?
8: I hit a pothole on Archer, and I blew my tire out.
7: Can't pay or for it. Or maybe
8: worse. Oh, sorry yeah. to hear that. Yeah, that's what I get for trying to leave Bridgeport. John, you listening? What are you doing, Kyle? It's cool, he's signaling
7: his friend in Undertown. John, don't even... Listen, I'm sending an SOS beacon to Undertown. You see, when I hit this pole with this wrench, a vibratory pattern will travel through yeah, the earth. Kyle, the...
8: man, stop disturbing the neighborhood. It's the neighborhood that's disturbing, it. It's noise, and I want it to stop. <laughs> it's, it's actually a pattern like Morse code. It's you see, noise. It's
7: noise, but, you know, we could be done with this if you just lend a hand once in a while. Yeah, he's not wrong. All you do is yell at him.
8: He collects cigarette butts. He's a 70-year-old
7: man. I'm so old, though. My back and...
8: You do, you You're not selling it, Kyle. You've got to save Undertown, Ed. The very thing holding Bridgeport back is Undertown. Oh, yeah.
7: You want to say it again?
8: Don't touch
5: my
7: face. What the look, heck? Look. What the heck is that? Yeah. Is it a body?
8: What is it? Is it a head? What can't believe is it Jesus. Uh, this, is the, this is the guy we're signaling. This is psychotic. This stuff name? happens all the time, Ed. Now, people just don't emerge from a hole in the street. What the heck is going on here? All the gates to Undertown are locked up desperate time, said. Wait a minute, do
7: I know you? Yeah, you and your mob been throwing me out of the bar for years. What you learnt about what's going down in Undertown? There ain't no time to waste. We gotta get out of Bridgeport. This place is gonna <laughs> blow. Blow? blow. What is it? What? What's gonna blow? Gary and I-Dot's plan is to level Bridgeport by creating potholes. Then one day, whammy, it sinkhole city. What the heck for? So glad you asked. Gary's calling it Project Pitport. After Bridgeport is rubble, he's gonna form his own sovereign nation on top of it. Undertown actually wants to go topside?
8: Gary does. Oh, but don't good. nobody in Undertown wanna? This is just like the plot to Dark Knight Rises. We
7: gotta stop Gary Indiana Jones from destroying Undertown. Wanna flip forward? What, are you, what,
8: what the hell are you talking about here, man? What about stopping him from destroying Bridgeport? Uh, Bridgeport's fine,
7: but I wouldn't take a bullet for it. Kyle! Well, technically, by saving Undertown, we're saving Bridgeport. Not totally. That's true. I mean, if we toppled Undertown, then we'd be saving
8: Bridgeport.
7: Right, right. Bridgeport's problem is Undertown, therefore, saving Uh, Undertown technically... Whatever
8: it takes to save Bridgeport from total annihilation, do that, Kyle. Yeah, but so what? Absolutely, that's a good point. John! WTF, man! (laughs) What? You're surprised, Ed? This whole show was your idea. I mean, Ed, are you ready to fight to save the community of the future? Oh, jeez. I suppose if I have to...
7: It'll be like the 1985 cult classic, Goonies. That's what I thought.
8: Yeah, just like Goonies, but where everyone is like Sloth.
7: Now that's what I call Ed Marschewski finally getting involved. I can't wait to hear how this ends. Anywho, if you want to get involved, go to lumpinradio.com for more information. But until then, listen to the rest of this programs.
1: This week on the Trump Diaries, Trump knew how deadly COVID was and deliberately lied to Americans. Trump denigrates war dead and the military. Trump's campaign is running out of money. Michael Cohen's book links Jerry Falwell's endorsement to damaging photos and the has falsified intelligence to suit Trump. These are the Trump Diaries. Day 1324, September 4th. Trump refused to visit the American cemetery in France because he feared the rain would mess up his hair and he did not believe it was important to honor the war dead. Calling dead soldiers losers and suckers, Trump repeatedly questioned why anyone would be a soldier, saying, quote, what's in it for them? Trump's antipathy toward war heroes was well known. He opposed the lowering of flags to half-mast for the late John McCain, who of course was a prisoner of war. The furor caused by Trump's disparaging of war dead rapidly exploded as Fox News confirmed one of their correspondents had personally heard Trump use such language. Jennifer Griffin confirmed that Trump had called soldiers suckers and had questioned why anyone would want to become a soldier and also had not wanted to honor war dead in France. That report is shaping up to be a major liability for Trump, he is overwhelmingly supported by military families in the states. Trump angrily denied the report, calling, quote, it is more made-up fake news given disgusting and jealous failures in a disgraceful attempt to influence the 2020 election. However, that report, first broken in The Atlantic, was independently verified and confirmed by the AP, The Post, and, as we noted, Fox News. Former National Security Advisor John Bolton cited Trump's remarks and called them despicable. The chief advisor for the White House vaccine program said it was extremely unlikely but not impossible that a vaccine could be available by the end of October. Dr. Mansef Slaoui said the CDC's guidance for states to prepare for a vaccine was, quote, the right thing to do, but cautioned there was only a very low chance a vaccine could clear clinical trials before the election. Trump told North Carolina residents to vote twice, once by mail and once in person, to, quote, test if their system's as good as they say it is voting twice in the same election is illegal in North Carolina, it is a class one felony. Attorney General William Barr defended Trump's statement saying, quote, he was trying to make the point the ability to monitor the system is not good. When told that voting twice is illegal, Barr replied, I don't know what the law in the particular state says. Barr then added he's not sure if it is illegal to vote twice in any state before claiming that state and local officials are, quote, playing with fire if they rely on mail-in ballots in the November election. Another 881,000 people applied for unemployment last week. 29 million people are now receiving some sort of assistance. In related news, Trump's attempts to bypass Congress with executive actions has failed. Only one state is paying new jobless benefits and evictions continue across the United States. The Senate still has not debated the House's $3 trillion relief bill that was passed in July. The Trump campaign has sued the state of Montana in an attempt to block an expansion of mail-in voting. Montana already allows voters to request and submit absentee ballots for any reason. Trump's campaign also sued New Jersey and Nevada last month for planning to send mail-in ballots to all state voters. Day 1325, September 5th. As the Labor Day weekend began, new polls show that Trump continues to trail Joe Biden by a significant margin, both nationwide and in critical battleground states. Biden leads by at least seven points and as many as 11 points, larger margins than held by Hillary Clinton at the same time in 2016. Joe Biden also met privately with the family of Jacob Blake in Kenosha, Wisconsin yesterday and spoke to Blake in the hospital by phone before hosting a listening session with activists, elected officials, clergy, business people and police. Biden sought to draw a clear contrast between himself and Trump, calling the moment, quote, a clear inflection point in our history. Trump responded by mocking Biden at a rally for wearing a mask, saying, quote, it just makes him feel secure. Day 1326, September 6th. Trump's financial supremacy in the 2020 election appears to have evaporated. Accounts show that of the $1.1 billion his campaign and party raised from the beginning of 2019, more than $800 million has already been spent. Trump is now said to be facing a cash crunch with under 60 days until the election. Joe Biden smashed fundraising records last month with $365 million in donations. Postmaster General Louis DeJoy is alleged to have asked employees to make campaign contributions to Republicans and gave them bonuses to defray those costs. That is a so-called straw man donor scheme and it is illegal. DeJoy, who is a Republican mega-donor and one-time executive of a shipping company based in North Carolina known as New Breed, he has been accused of cultivating an environment at his former company that left employees feeling pressured to make donations to Republicans. DeJoy then rewarded them with bonuses for doing so. Carolyn Maloney, the Democrat of New York and the chair of the House Oversight Committee, called on the Postal Service's Board of Governors to suspend DeJoy. DeJoy may have also perjured himself. He denied that practice in a Congressional hearing last month. Day 1327, September 7th. Angered that Vice President Mike Pence and Democratic candidates were getting TV coverage on Labor Day, Trump abruptly called a White House news conference and then aired a range of personal and political grievances. He called his opponents names. Joe Biden is a stupid person and Kamala Harris is, quote, not a competent person. And then he launched an extraordinary attack on the country's senior military officials. Trump suggested the accusations he ridiculed war dead, widely confirmed, came from Pentagon leaders, whom he described as war profiteers. Quote, they want to do nothing but fight wars so that all of those wonderful companies that make the bombs, that make the planes, that make everything else, stay happy. Worth noting is that Trump's own Secretary of Defense, Mark Esper, was the former head of Rayathon, which is a major defense contractor. Trump also unleashed a screed against a reporter for asking him a question while wearing a mask. Jeff Mason of Reuters was asked by Trump to quote, You're going to have to take that off, please. Trump said, "Can You can just take that off You're How many feet are you away? Mason declined saying, I'll just speak a lot louder. Trump's performance was met with a stone-faced press court who notably did not engage with Trump's more unhinged rants against his opponents. In a new book, Trump's former lawyer and fixer, Michael Cohen, says Trump routinely referred to black leaders with racist insults. Describing Trump as, quote, a cheat, a liar, a fraud, a bully, a racist, a sexual predator, and a con man, Cohen says Trump was also well aware of the hush money payoff to Stormy Daniels. Cohen says Trump deeply admires Vladimir Putin for his crushing of personal dissent and his control of 25% of Russia's economy. He also describes Trump as consumed with hatred for President Barack Obama to the point of obsession. Cohen's book describes Trump as hiring, quote, a faux Obama or fake Obama to record a video where Trump ritualistically belittled the first black president and then fired him, a kind of fantasy fulfillment that it was hard to imagine any adult would spend serious money living out until he did the functional equivalent in the real world. In a related story, Trump issued an executive order to purge the federal government of racial sensitivity training that his White House called divisive anti-American propaganda. Trump then tweeted, this is a sickness, sorry liberals, how to be anti-white 101 is permanently canceled. A federal judge blocked Trump's attempt to wrap up the census a month ahead of schedule. Judge Lucy Ko of the District Court in North Carolina halted plans for an early finish to the headcounting portion of the census, at least until mid-September. The lawsuit brought by the League of Women Voters notes the plaintiffs would have no remedy for at least a decade if the census is paused. Trump has tried to stifle the census several times, believing an undercount significantly helps Republicans. Day 1328, September 8th. Congress returns to Washington today with no deal on pandemic relief and a possible government shutdown on the cards as well. Millions of Americans remain unemployed. Cities and states are now beginning to enact significant budget cuts due to the Senate's refusal to act. The House, of course, passed a relief bill three months ago. The government fiscal year now expires on October 1st. Trump went on an early morning tweeting frenzy, quote, tweeting Kurt Schilling, who praised Trump and Attorney General William Barr over supposed action on child trafficking rings. The former Red Sox pitcher is one of those who's helped promote the QAnon anti-Semitic conspiracy theory. Trump also launched a tirade against Black Lives Matter protests and lashed out at coronavirus restrictions, blaming local Democratic officials for keeping economies closed. Quote, these shutdowns are ridiculous and only being done to hurt our economy prior to the most important election, perhaps, in our history. Michael Cohen's book contained more damaging revelations about Trump. Trump apparently dissed Melania in the face of her purported threats to leave their marriage, quote, I can always get another wife, that's no problem for me if she wants to go, so be it. According to Cohen, that relationship was just another deal, plain and simple. Cohen also tied the 2016 presidential endorsement of Trump by evangelical leader Jerry Falwell Jr. to Cohen's own role in helping to keep racy personal photographs of the Falwells from becoming public. Trump signed an order yesterday, extending a ban on oil drilling in the eastern Gulf of Mexico and restricting drilling along the southeastern coast of the United States. Declaring himself then a, quote, great environmentalist, Trump boasted, this protects your beautiful Gulf and your beautiful ocean and it will for a long time to come. However, on the same day, Trump significantly weakened protections for drinking water, gutting Obama-era standards for fossil fuel plant runoff. Trump's EPA fails to require now the most effective treatment methods, pushes back deadlines, and exempt many power plants from doing anything at all. One of those plants, Oak Creek, discharges directly into Lake Michigan. In a highly unusual move, the Justice Department moved to replace Trump's private legal team with government lawyers to defend him against a defamation lawsuit by the author E. Jean Carroll. Carroll accused Trump of raping her in a Manhattan department store in the 1990s. The DOJ is in effect defending Trump with taxpayer money. The motion also effectively protects Trump from any embarrassing disclosures in the middle of his campaign. Carol's lawyers have requested that he provide a DNA sample to determine whether his genetic material is on a dress that Carol said she was wearing at the time of the encounter. Day 1329, September 9th. A whistleblower says officials with the Department of Homeland Security directed agency analysts to downplay the threat of violent white supremacy and of Russian election interference. The DHS has long been accused of being overly politicized. Brian Murphy, the former head of the intelligence branch, said he was directed by Chad Wolf, the acting secretary of that department, to stop producing assessments on Russian interference at all. He said he was also told to produce false reports on left-wing interference. He understood that directive to come directly from Trump. Three draft reports from the DHS, in fact, all rank white supremacists as the deadliest domestic terror threat facing the United States. That is far above the danger from foreign terrorist groups. Attorney General William Barr said the White House had asked the Justice Department to intervene in defending the president against a woman's accusations he defamed her. The memorandum argued that Trump had acted in his official capacity as president when he denied writer E. Jean Carroll's accusations and cited the Westfall Act. That would remove Trump as the defendant and substitute the government. Since the government has sovereign immunity and cannot be sued for defamation, that case now could be dismissed. Trump instructed the Department of Education to investigate the use of the New York Times' 1619 project in public school curriculums. The Pulitzer Prize winning project aims to reframe American history, quote, by placing the consequences of slavery and the contributions of black Americans at the center of the US's national narrative. Trump tweeted that the, quote, D of E is looking at this. If so, they will not be funded. And Dr. Anthony Fauci said it's unlikely a coronavirus vaccine will be ready before the November election, but a vaccine by the end of the year is more likely. Despite Trump's pressure on officials to speed up that timeline, nine drug companies publicly pledged yesterday not to seek regulatory approval before the safety and efficacy of their experimental vaccines have been established in phase three trials. One trial has already had to be halted after a patient reported an adverse neurological reaction. Day 1330, September 10th. In a shocking revelation, Trump admitted coronavirus was deadly in February to journalist Bob Woodward while actively downplaying it to the public. Trump told Woodward he knew coronavirus was both deadly and airborne and that he deliberately lied to the U.S. public. The admission is already having blowback. Trump's staff routinely told citizens not to wear masks or to socially distance. In a related story, the TSA is to stop conducting enhanced screening of passengers on inbound international flights for COVID-19. These screening operations have been held at select airports since January, targeting incoming international flights. Select high-risk countries, including most of Europe, China, Iran, and India, have been funneled previously through 15 designated airports in the U.S. Bob Woodward's book also quotes General Jim Mattis as describing Trump as dangerous and unfit for the presidency. Dan Coats, the director of national intelligence at the same time, was haunted by the president's Twitter feed and believed that Trump's gentle approach to Russia reflected something more sinister and that Moscow had something on Trump. Trump's repeated attacks on the military this week are also causing fractures at the Pentagon. Calling his generals weak, Trump claimed, quote, they care more about their alliances than they do about trade deals. Sources say Trump is frustrated the military will not serve him and only him as he would like. Trump also refused to express empathy toward black victims of police violence. When Trump was asked if he was working, quote, to understand the anger and the pain particularly that black people feel in this country, Trump replied, no, you really drank the Kool-Aid, didn't you? Just listen to you. Wow, wow, no, I don't feel that at all. Senate Republicans are voting on a so-called skinny stimulus bill that is guaranteed to fail. Democrats are lined up against it, as are, in fact, many in the GOP. The bill would not make payments to Americans nor restore unemployment-enhanced benefits. It would, however, offer broad liability protection to businesses, something the Republican Party has long sought. In a related story, Trump claimed he's, quote, taking the high road by not meeting with Democrats. I don't need to meet with them to be turned down. They don't want to make a deal because they think if the country does as badly as possible, that's good for them. Worth noting is that the Democrat-controlled House, in fact, passed a relief bill three months ago. More than 857,000 workers filed for unemployment last week. That is a slight increase from last week. Although the unemployment rate has fallen to 8.4%, the level of layoffs reflects the serious challenges the economy still faces. Being hit hard are seasonal and gig workers. They have surged applications into the pandemic assistance program. The state of Nevada, where Trump had rallies in Reno and Las Vegas scheduled for this weekend, has forced those events to be called off. The Reno Tahoe Airport Authority informed the tenants who had leased the hangar that rented it to Trump that the event was in violation of a state directive limiting gatherings to just 50 people. And a Trump boat parade was held in Texas. 2,600 people said they were going to attend. Instead, choppy waters caused five boats to sink. These are the Trump Diaries.
0: On You played a special showcase in Studio C on the eve of the pandemic. This is an excerpt from their forthcoming John Daly session. It was engineered by Coria L. Britton and mastered by Stan Wood.
9: Uh, press conference turned out to be about was using this as a as a demonstration of this spider like covert and seamless graft that uh, that when implanted in a body is able to read the chemistry, the the level of of automatic responses and the nervous system and thermophysical uh, 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 systems that are going on um, and able to map the structures of feelings and experiences into code. No, no. Um, just to clarify, when you say graft, what is that? What does that mean exactly? Well, it's a it's a small stick like implant that is perfectly perfectly uh, installed into the the body um, that it almost as an extension of said body. Okay. Okay. It sort of tricks the different uh, the different parts of your body into thinking that it that it is in itself. A, a meaty organ a, a part of the nervous or the limbic system that it should be interacting with and that's how it gets most of its information interesting so very interesting. what um sp- uh, one of the biggest things that they released was a uh, was a software called uh court x court x is a is an open um, emotion mapping software that i mean realistically one of the big asks for a Prairie City Dynamics, here was to encourage people to investigate both their emotions and use Court X to help develop the open source uh, the open source understanding of how emotions can be converted into uh, actual actionable data. Well, this all sounds quite laudable so far, um, right? It's part of this whole lo- the lo- uh, globalization, uh movement. I believe I've heard about that. Yeah. Yes. Um so the promises that were made with this with with this with this huge reveal was that uh these automatic processes uh could in fact uh, understand and uh develop fear uh, like understand and collect uh the information related to fear um, specifically the fight or flight response mm-hmm. fight or flight enhancements possibly um could help directing and supporting grief and trauma um it, it, so this day, this uh, this the software might even be able to allow for deeper connections between people and AI, or perhaps people and people. Uh, um, perhaps even a, a therapist on a chip. Right, a therapist on a chip, or in situations of danger or excitement, um, they could they there there could be manifest certain technology, uh, externals technology, which would create something like a force field on the outside, or sort of like a fight or flight. They could you know develop wings. Or Brass Knuckles, whatever you may need, depending on this this automatic emotional response to stimuli. Broadcast every Sunday people.
0: The Lumpin' Week in Review is produced by the staff and volunteers of WLPN LP Chicago, the community radio of the future. The Week in Review is overseen by Jamie Trecker, voiceovers by Shanna Volt, additional production by Cole Eisenberg, Julie Wu, Sergio Rodriguez, Neil Gaynor, Lane Gerbig, Alexander Jerry, John Pietraski, Ari Shellist, and Annie Klein. Live music production by Ari Shellist. The Lumpen theme, background, and interstitial music is by Mike Perkins. The Lumpen Radio Sting is by Dan Jugal. For more information on Lumpen Radio, visit lumpenradio.com. <laughs>